Um, if I've never met you before, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor at, here at Christ Church, and it is such a joy to have you all here with us this morning. Um, we are in the season of Epiphany. Our church follows the historic church calendar, and um, basically we have kind of seasons and special days and feasts that help us walk through the life of Christ every single year. And this season is the season of Epiphany, which comes after Christmas. And we talked about this last week, but in Christmas, Jesus comes and then in the season of Epiphany, it's like we have this season of understanding who he is. It's a season of light bulbs going off over our heads. Um, so, so many of us are here from so many different places. I know some of you, I don't know all of you, but all of us are coming to the Bible this morning from a different place. Um, but this is the season where it's a great season to ask questions like, who is Jesus? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? So I pray this morning that we would have a lot of light bulbs going off. That's what, that's what the Bible wants to happen. Sound good? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good and your love endures forever and you are good all the time. Minister to us the goodness of the news of Jesus Christ and what this baptism means. In your name we pray, amen. Um, before somebody steps into an office of leadership or kind of fills a role, there's often a season where people are waiting to see who it's going to be. So in politics, think of when a national convention is happening and kind of everybody's waiting to see who a party will nominate as the man or woman for the job to fill the role. If you're a sports person, think of when two quarterbacks are vying for the same position, the same starting position, and everybody's waiting to see who's, who it's going to be. Uh, one of my most favorite dramatic ones is when a new pope is being selected. Some of you may know this. 120 cardinals gather in the Sistine Chapel in secrecy to select who's going to be the new pope. And everybody waits on the outside. And in all those situations, uh, people are outside of that. Those decision-making processes are they're watching to see who is it going to be. Who's going to fill the role? Who's going to fill the office? And in many situations, what they're looking for is a sign that will point out this is the man or the woman. So some of you may know this, but when the Pope is selected in the Sistine Chapel, if they don't agree, black smoke rises from the Sistine Chapel chimney, and everybody knows, oh, they didn't decide. But if they do decide, white smoke rises out of the Sistine Chapel chimney, and then everybody, which there's always tons of people in St. Peter's Basilica, goes nuts. It would be interesting to be there. We don't do anything like that at our church, but maybe we should when we pick up staff. Um, to, to switch over to fiction for a second, and some of our be most beloved kind of cultural stories that are so big and important that we love, there's almost always some prophecy about one who will come. So think uh, the one who will restore balance to the force, or the one who will defeat the matrix, or the one who will stand up to Voldemort. There's almost always a prophecy and almost in every situation, there's a sign that people know they're supposed to look for when the one will fill the office. He or she will be this. They will be like that. You will see them like this. One of my favorites uh, is from the Arthurian legends is the sword and the stone. Uh, this is the classic symbol that there was this thing that would happen and then you would know, oh my gosh, he just took Excalibur out of the stone. It's him. Turn with me to the beginning of your gospel reading. Luke 3, chapter 15, what page is it on? Nine. Nine. If you've got a Bible, open up to Luke 3. If you've uh, got the order of service, turn there with me. And I want you to look at the very first verse in this gospel. 
as the people were in expectation. Our story this morning begins with people in expectation. They are biting their nails. This is a group of people who are constantly refreshing their news feeds. They're waiting for something. They're looking for something. And why are they in expectation? They're in expectation because this crazy mountain man named John the Baptist has been preaching crazy stuff at them, saying God is coming. His central message has been, if you look back in Luke 3, which we studied a couple weeks ago, prepare the way of the Lord. Everybody's about to see God and his salvation. And one of the things John the Baptist was saying, the way that you prepare for the way of the Lord is to repent, uh, which we talked about in November or December. And these people had done that. They'd humbled themselves. They'd opened up their hearts to make room for God to come. And so they're all waiting and they're all ready. And uh, we can read into this a little bit because we know a little bit about the story. But all these people were there and they were there maybe for different reasons. Uh, Many of them for sure, the nation of Israel at this point was suffering under Roman oppression. And so they wanted to deliver. They were ready to see the salvation of God. Some were probably just really excited that they potentially could meet God. They had the chance to meet him, to see him. Some might have been struggling with physical or emotional wounds and they wanted healing. We know when Jesus gets on the scene, people flock to him for that reason. Some might have been just convicted by John the Baptist. They wanted to see an individual and a social reform. They wanted to see things changed. So you have this great crowd all gathered around in expectation. In verse 15, uh, it goes on, and the crowds wonder for a second, wait a second, John, is it you? As you, you know, he was crazy. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So they're all like, well, wait a second. Are you already here? You know, is it you? And John does his classic, no, it's not me. It's kind of the main, the mantra of John is, I am not the Christ. So he tells them, it's not me. Um, And then in verse 16 and 17, John gives one last fiery sermon, which I don't have time to get into. Then in verses 18 to 20, if you're looking at your your passage, Luke kind of pauses the story and lets John John the Baptist exit the scene. So it tells you what ends up happening to him because he was such a truth teller. He ended up getting put in prison and ultimately beheaded because he spoke truth to power like nobody's business. And then Luke lets John the Baptist exit the scene. And for John the Baptist, who's so humble and just wanted to point to the coming of the Lord, it's mission accomplished. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord and he leaves. And then, what is it? Verse 21, Luke pans the camera back to the river where John the Baptist is. And this is where we get to Jesus' baptism. And everything we talked about with John the Baptist, all of Luke 1, 2, and 3 rises to its glorious resolution at this moment. So read it with me. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. There are other parts of the story of Jesus' baptism that other gospel writers include, but Luke just skips over all of them. He doesn't even tell you when Jesus gets there because he wants to get right to the heart of what he wants you to see. 
And that is this moment that God identifies and empowers the one. This is the moment in the history of the world that the sword comes out of the stone. This is the moment in the history of all humanity that white smoke rises. John said one was coming. That was his job. That's why he was born. That's why he was sent. Tell people somebody's about to come. And at Jesus' baptism, God says, Jesus is him. This is the one. And this announcement has two really, really crucial parts to this confirmation, this sign. One is visible and one is audible. It's like all sense, it's super sensory. Everything is involved in this affirmation from God. And both of these parts are so deep and so profound because they're like signs from the Old Testament. They're like the sword and the stone. If you had no idea what the sword and the stone meant when little King Arthur, however the story goes, I don't know. I just know the Disney movie, so I don't know if that's true to form. Takes it out of the stone. You just be like, wow, you took a stone out of the, the sword out of the stone. That's cool. You would have no idea. Be like if you had no idea what the white smoke coming out of the Sistine Chapel was. When you saw everybody going nuts in St. Peter's Basilica, you would just be like, oh, this is weird. I wonder if somebody needs to put a fire out, you know? It's the same with this. We want to wrap our minds around why, what's happening here that's so profound and so deep. And to that, we have to go back into the Bible, into the Old Testament, which is where these signs come out of. And uh, I just want to warn you, I'm about to throw a lot of Bible at you uh, because we want to go back to understand all this. But I trust that you're here because more than just being mildly entertained, you actually do want to meet God too. You want to see Jesus' manifestation. You want to understand it too. So I'm going to ask a lot uh, of us in the next few seconds, minutes. But I also will do my hardest to make this really understandable, even if you don't know a lot about the Bible. Okay, that's my promise to you. Sound good? And uh, if you don't understand something, just come, come ask me afterwards. So there's a visual and there's an audible part to this sign from God. First, we're going to get into the visual. You can even look at the front of your bulletin. There's this beautiful sketch of Jesus' baptism. Um, this was done by one of the artists in our church network, which now that is carved into a wooden door entering into a sanctuary. It's really, really beautiful. But the visual part is in the first half of verse 22, where the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Now, what is going on here? In the Old Testament, the sign that identified and commenced the reign of a king was an anointing. And in fact, the word anointed one is what, where we get the word Messiah from. It just means the one who is anointed, the Messiah, which is what the king was called. And we get a great picture of this in the story of Samuel and David in the Old Testament, which some of you may know, but David's one of the most famous kings in the, in the Jewish scriptures. And before David became king, there was a prophet named Samuel whom God had chosen to anoint David to kind of set him apart as the king. So one day, God tells Samuel, before David was king, hey, I've chosen a king from the sons of this guy named Jesse. So David goes up to Jesse and all his family, and with everybody watching, he's looking at all his sons, and God's like, no, it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one, and then he gets to the, the runt of the litter, the little shepherd boy David, and God goes, him. And so here's how, this is what 1 Samuel 16, which tells the story, says. It says this, and the Lord says, the Lord said, to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that moment forward. So when that happened, all the people would have gone, oh, look, it's David. He just took the sword out of the stone. Oh, my gosh. Now bring all that back to Jesus' baptism. To begin, John the Baptist's story is exactly parallel to Samuel's story. It's really, really cool. Um, John the Baptist and Samuel were both prophets. Both of these great stories begin with their mothers having a miraculous pregnancy. So Samuel's mom was Hannah. We read her story a couple weeks ago. John the Baptist's mom was Elizabeth, and she and Zachariah's story kick off all the Gospel of Luke. And their whole job was to point out and help and participate in the anointing of the king. Samuel anointed David with oil, but Jesus is anointed here visually with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down and anoints him. And it's also in this moment he is empowered to do the job. You notice with David, he's anointed and the Spirit rushes upon him. Also in this story, he is, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, but he is empowered as well through the Holy Spirit. And in our Acts reading this morning, which was uh, the one that Max read, notice that Peter even says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth at the baptism with Holy Spirit and with power. So it's this visual part of this confirmation that Luke wants you to see. He wants you to go, oh my gosh, look at that. He's the anointed one. The second part is audible. This is something you would have heard and which we're hearing right now. And it's this heavenly blessing that God declares over Jesus, which is the second half of verse 22. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. To Jewish ears, to people who would have heard that when they first heard it audibly from heaven, they would have understood that that little phrase is just dripping with beautiful, rich, deep meaning. That little phrase is not just like a nice, cute thing that God says to his son. It's like packed with deep, deep illusion and deep, deep significance. It's like biblical concentrate. <laughs> Because with that short little phrase, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, God is alluding to three great Old Testament characters. And by saying that, he's wrapping up all those storylines and characters and he's pointing them at Jesus to say, this is him. So to unlock the meaning of this little phrase, we're going to spend the rest of our time diving into each of these three little characters for a second. And if you're a note taker, these will be notable if you want to. So three characters from the Old Testament, we're going to dive into it. Sound good? You guys still with me? The first is the mighty king. Okay, if you're a note taker in your Bible or in your bulletin, when God in that saying, she says in verse 22, you can underline the word son and you can write Psalm 2 next to it. So to understand this story, this character of the mighty king, we go to Psalm 2, which is that psalm we read this morning. It's one of the most important psalms in the Bible. It's one of the most often quoted, and it is all about the coming king, the coming anointed one. And I actually want to read it together. So can you flip to it with me? Somebody call out what page it's on. Seven. Okay, so let me start here. Number one, first one, I guess. Why are the nations in an uproar? 
Why do the peoples mutter empty threats? Why do the kings of the earth rise up in revolt? And the princes plot together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their yoke, they say. Let us cast off their bonds from us. So at the beginning here, all the world, all evil is rising to threaten to destroy God and his anointed one. Everything that is wrong with the world, everything that would steal joy or oppress or pervert is rising up. Think in any of your favorite movies where there's a really bad big army outside of a gate kind of smashing its shields. Um, think of somebody in a palace where he knows everybody is whispering a plot to overtake him. That's the image here. And how does God respond? Look in verse 4. He whose throne is in heaven is laughing. The Lord has them in derision. Then he speaks to them in his wrath and rage fills them with terror. I myself have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Let me announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, and here's where you should recognize this, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. God laughs. Because why? Because he's got a mighty king who he has set on his holy hill, and he says no evil can stand against him. No plot can overtake him. He knows that his king will inherit the nations, and it says in verse 9 that he will shatter his enemies like a piece of pottery, which is a pretty hardcore image. And to that anointed one, he says, you're my son. And therefore, Psalm 2 ends with this warning, and rightfully so, and now you, this is in verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Submit to the Lord with fear and with trembling, bow before him. Blessed are they who take refuge in him. So when God gives this blessing at Jesus' baptism, he's assuming all that Psalm 2 language and he's pointing at Jesus and saying, he's that guy. He's the king. This is the one who will inherit the earth. This is the one whom no evil and no darkness and no powers of this world can stand against. He's the mighty king, the king of kings. That's the first character. The second is the suffering servant, for which we turn to Isaiah 42, um, which Nicole read. And if you are writing in your, in your bulletin, you can underline the words well-pleased in what God says, and right next to it, Isaiah 42. Flip with me to Isaiah 42 for a second. What page is it on? Six. It's on page 6. This is another great, great Old Testament character that's foretold. And like Psalm 2, he's the chosen one who's going to bring justice and inherit the earth. But it's, Isaiah goes into how he will accomplish those things, and it is a shocking compliment to the picture that we get in Psalm 2. Because Isaiah says that this servant, the king, will establish justice and vanquish his enemies through his suffering and through his humility. So flip to Isaiah 42. Let's start in verse 1. This is stunningly beautiful poetry. So get excited because this is really good. Verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. You see that language there? I have put my spirit upon him. That should ring some bells too. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Where Psalm 2 is the most hardcore picture of strength, right? Inheriting the nations with a rod of iron and shattering pottery. This is the greatest possible picture of gentleness and meekness. A bruised reed he will not break. break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Can you get any more gentle than that? Imagine a little candle in your house just barely about to go out. It's like he's like protecting it. But lest you think that this gentleness and meekness means weakness or it contradicts Psalm 2, look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. In another part of Isaiah, which also talks about this suffering servant, it talks about how he will act wisely, he will be high and lifted up, but that he'll have no form or beauty or majesty that we should desire him. In other words, he's not going to be some worldly, handsome dude. He's not going to be the kind of person you think would be, you know, the it man. And it also says that he would be a man of sorrows. He would be well acquainted with grief. And that all this would be because he would bear all of our sins. He would be wounded so that we could be healed. And in this weird backwards way, he would be destroyed so that we could be victorious. So, to bring all that back together, when God says, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. He's saying to the world, look, this is the suffering servant. This is the one who by his meekness and his gentleness and his humility and his own suffering will heal the nations and bring justice to all things. What an amazing thing. The shocking thing about Jesus' life is that he is both the mighty king and the suffering servant at the same time. Somehow, these two great pictures both go together in the person of Jesus. And that would be a contradiction in any other case except for him. He is the king of kings who rules over all darkness but welcomes children. He's the great lord of lords, but he gets down and washes his dirty blue-collar fisherman disciples' feet. It's this wild both and in the life of Christ that's one of the most beautiful and compelling things about him. And God is saying he's both. This is the suffering servant. This is the mighty king. Third character. You guys with me? I told you I was going to ask a lot of you. The third character is the beloved son. And if you are, again, a note taker, underline the word beloved in that phrase that God says. So he's the mighty king, he's the suffering servant, and he's the beloved son. And for this, we go to Genesis 22. Regardless of how familiar you are with the Bible, uh, you may have heard of the rather bizarre story of Abraham and Isaac. And like I said, it's from Genesis 22. As the story goes, Abraham's the father of our faith, and God says he's going to bless Abraham so that he could bless the world. And one of the ways he was going to do that was giving Abraham and his wife a son because they were barren. They didn't have any children. And eventually Sarah, Sarah gets miraculously pregnant, and she has a son, and they have a, a son, an only son, and his name is Isaac. But then in Genesis 22, this happens. So I'm reading. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, 
whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And unless you missed it, to translate that into our language, he's saying, take your son and go kill him on a mountain as a sacrifice. That's insane to us, right? But believe it or not, all the nations in the ancient world practiced sacrifice because they knew the world was messed up and they knew something needed to be done for it. So they had this sacrificial system. There had to be an atonement. And sadly, in many nations, people actually did practice child sacrifice, which is something that the God of Israel and the God of the Bible always rejected. Uh, some of you know from the, the Battle of Troy, Agamemnon kills one of his daughters so that he could have good winds on his way to, to Troy. So Abraham hears this, and he's shocked. The only son I have, the one I love. And so he obeys, and he goes up on the mountain. But what happens? Some of you know the ending of the story. He goes up on the mountain in faith, and God stops him. An angel is there, and it says, no, don't do this. And instead of Isaac dying, God provides a ram caught in a thicket. And Genesis concludes the story with this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, God was teaching Abraham and all of us in this story that because of his great love for us, he would never require of us anything like that. But that, like it says, he would provide a way. Now let's go back to Jesus' baptism. In John's gospel, uh, so in a different story of the baptism, as soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to his baptism, he points at him and he says something that we sing every week, behold the lamb. And here in this passage, God says from heaven, you are my beloved son. Or in other words, this is my son, my only son, whom I love. Psalm 2 and the suffering servant and the beloved son, these three storylines that God is wrapping up and pointing at Jesus saying, it's him. They all come together on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's where they all start to make sense. The baptism was the anointing of Jesus, right? It wasn't his coronation. He was crowned. His coronation came when he got a crown of thorns placed on his head. And on the cross, some of you know this, but there was a sign that said, rightly, the king of the Jews. It's when the whole world saw he's the king. It was then that as the suffering servant, he was crushed for our iniquities. It was then that as the mighty king, he shattered his enemies like a piece of pottery by dying. Because when he died, he defeated sin. And when he rose again, he defeated death. Amen? Amen. And it was then that as the beloved son, he was the lamb slain on the mountain of the Lord so that you and I wouldn't have to be. That's when all these things come together in the most beautiful, unsuspecting, shocking, sacrificial way possible. The baptism of Jesus is when God says, he's the one. It's Jesus. He's the one who is all those things. And Jesus didn't enter into this, and God didn't speak from heaven, and the Holy Spirit didn't come down on him for God's sake. They did it so that people could see it and hear it. It was meant to be, if it was today, publicly live-streamed, 
worldwide broadcasted TV. It was meant for people to see and know and understand, oh my goodness, it's him. Now, if this was a class, we would stop there because I would be like, isn't that amazing? Uh, and I, by the way, thanks for sticking with me. That was a lot of Bible. You're never supposed to like go into five different stories in the Old Testament. So I have required a lot from you and that might have been too much and I'm okay with that being possible. But these things are really important. And if it was a class, I'd be like, isn't that great? The Bible's so unique and literarily rich and we would leave. But this is not a class. This is church. And we don't think the Bible is just a book. We think it's living and active, that it penetrates the soul. And we think that the Bible is words from a living God who speaks. And like we talked about last week, its main purpose is to reveal and manifest Jesus to us. So here is the kicker. All right, here's coming back up from all the Old Testament and all those things to Madison, Wisconsin on January whatever. I don't even know what day it is. It's a Sunday morning, I know that, because I'm preaching. But coming back all the way up to right now, here's the kicker. This manifestation of Jesus, all these signs are for you. They're for me. They're for you to see. They're for you to hear. You see, we too are a crowd that lives in expectation. Are we not? We live in a culture that constantly refreshes our news feeds. We look for someone we look for something. We are in expectation. Some of us even heard John the Baptist call in real time. It's amazing how God's word works like that a couple months ago. And we repented. We made room in our heart for the one to come. And here it is before us. It's right in front of you. It's right in front of me. God anointed and blessed Jesus at his baptism so that you could see and know that he is the one you are waiting for. Amen? Amen? All of us know what it's like for darkness and evil and pain to rush up upon you, to be like an enemy outside of your metaphorical gate and to smash its shields and to make you scared, right? Jesus is the mighty king. Nobody's stronger than him. All of us know what it's like to suffer from shame or woundedness. All of us have experienced those things. We spend a lot of money searching for wholeness or forgiveness. Jesus is the suffering servant. He knows what it's like. He entered into it. No one is more beautiful or compelling or forgiving than Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He was wounded so that you and I could be made whole completely. And he is the beloved son. He is the one provided on the mountain of the Lord to suffer in our place. No one else can save you for your sins. No one else can forgive you but him. Nothing else in the world is as beautiful and as powerful and as complex and as simple as Jesus. And God wants you to see it. So the central message of Jesus is repent and believe. Act on it. Come to him. Stop your searching. Let your longing and the thirst and that expectation be utterly satisfied in Jesus. Stop searching. Jesus is the one. God anointed him and said of him, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 
Amen. So this morning, we have the opportunity to hear it and see it. It's him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that everything is pointing to the person of Jesus. Lord, I pray that in the rest of our service, and the rest of our week, we would meet him. We would love him. We would feel his overwhelming love for us and that you would make him known. In his name we pray, amen.